Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Harris Faulkner. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, March 25th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. The U.S. and its allies are keeping up the pressure on Russia. But the war in Ukraine is just one crisis on a lengthy list. If the world were an emergency room... The Biden White House is in triage mode. We speak with Fox's Dana Perino. I'm Chris Foster. Chef Jose Andres and his team are serving more than 200,000 meals a day to Ukrainians forced to leave their homes. All the Europe and all the world should be with the Ukrainian people that they're going through a war that has no reason to exist. The least we can be doing is that the people going through this mayhem, at the very least, can be fed. And I'm Will Kane, and I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. It's a milestone many military experts didn't think was possible. Today marks one month since Russia began its carnage in Ukraine, the brutal invasion of Ukraine. But it's been a month of fierce resistance, with Russia largely unable to advance despite the mass devastation and hardship it's causing. President Biden spent the day with other world leaders in a trio of emergency summits, including a NATO meeting where Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made another appeal via video link for more weapons, still asking for planes and tanks. To save people in our cities, Ukraine needs military assistance without restrictions. Russia is using its entire arsenal against us. Also warning again that Russia's goal isn't just Ukraine. And what if Russia turns to chemical weapons? We would respond. We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. As more sanctions were announced, President Biden also telling reporters in Brussels sanctions weren't meant to deter President Putin, that the most important thing is to maintain sanctions and unity. That after a month, we will sustain what we're doing, not just next month, the following month, but for the remainder of this entire year. That's what will stop him. He says NATO has never been more united. Well, a couple of things. One, it looks like there are a couple of countries in Europe that are going a little wobbly on the sanctions. Dana Perino is co-anchor of America's Newsroom on Fox News Channel, co-host of The Five, and a former White House press secretary for President George W. Bush. For example, France, they are doing the sanctions, but they're doing a ton of other business with Russia still. And I would imagine at the G7 leaders meeting that this will come up, that they need to be unified. Also, even for us, our energy sanctions don't go into place until June 24th. So Putin can withstand a lot of pain. Besides, he's not personally hurting. He doesn't care about his people. That's obvious. So I think that he is willing to take a lot of pain. The other thing is he did something kind of interesting. He said anyone wanting to buy oil and gas from Russia is going to have to pay in rubles. Why would he do that? Well, because he knows his financial system is under a tremendous amount of strain. And our country is going to want to change their currency into rubles in order to buy his oil and gas. I think that could backfire on him. And I think that something that is not changing his mind is that he doesn't care about the people, either the Ukrainians or his own people. He doesn't mind if they suffer. He's got a very 
different mindset than all of us. How much does United Front on Sanctions enforcement matter? Well, without it, it doesn't matter. Because, like, yeah. I mean, are we putting enough pressure on countries that are willing to help Putin in any way? I, I think that we'll have to see. Do you remember when we first put the sanctions forward about three weeks ago? Biden said, we'll see where we are in a month. And we all thought, what do you mean a month? That seems so far away. We need to know right away. These people are dying. But he had a longer range view and he was probably right on that. Right. So now we are a month into the war today and the Ukrainians are holding off the Russians better than anybody thought they might. More weapons are coming to help the Ukrainians. It's still a very precarious situation. And Putin has he doesn't want to just take over Ukraine. He's demolishing it. Some of these beautiful cities are gone. They're reduced to rubble. There is still kind of a debate about giving fighter jets to Ukraine, not directly from the U.S. This is all something Americans are paying a lot of attention to. 63% in a new Fox News poll say the U.S. should be doing more to help Ukrainians fight Russia. More than half in the survey said they would support a no-fly zone. Has the Biden administration had the right balance handling Putin so far? Well, on the MiGs in particular, it's very curious. One, I think that Poland was ready to do it. It seemed like it had been signed off by everybody, including the secretary of state. And then it goes to the president at the White House and he pulls it back. Now, he might have good reason to do that. And perhaps in the future, we'll be able to find out exactly what those reasons were. But Zelensky and his military believe that they need the MiGs in order to protect people from being shelled from up above. Without them, they say that they can't do it. Now, NATO and the countries that are um, supportive are saying, well, we'll provide you weapons and here's some tanks. I'm like, we don't want tanks. We want the missiles. So perhaps at this meeting of the minds, uh, NATO can come together and decide what is actually needed and what can we be pro- what can be provided as quickly as possible, because time is of the essence. I wanted to ask you about White House messaging because you've worked in a White House mm-hmm. in a time of crisis. How hard is it to thread that needle when you have to consider not only the American people and the media, but also allies and enemies with what you're saying? Oh, I love this question. The president that I worked for, President Bush, used to describe it to me as any president at any time is talking to five audiences, especially when there's a foreign policy issue involved. One is your ally. Two is your adversary. Three are the American people. Four the citizens of the other countries, and five, your own military. Wow. And sometimes you want to say something that will make the American people like you more, but it will sound off or wrong to your military, or it might complicate something for one of your allies, or your adversary might take it the wrong way. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into the communication. I sort of felt like one of the things that would be effective is when Putin is going on and on about the reuniting of the Ukrainian and and just like this really weird, distorted view of history, is to have a one-word answer from President Biden. Enough. Mm. And leave it at that. And let them guess what that means. Hmm. It has to be frustrating for any White House, though, if you're getting criticism on action or inaction, And maybe you're doing more than people think, but you can't actually talk about all of it. Sure. And they should not be talking about all of it. I'm super sympathetic to that. And Admiral Kirby at the press, um, the press secretary at the Pentagon, I think, does a very good job. And the other thing he said the other day, Admiral Kirby said, trust me, we are doing things we cannot tell you about. And when you see that the Ukrainians, they might not be winning, but they're not losing. 
I think that we have to believe him when he says that. Every White House faces some headwinds. Mm-hmm. Um, is it fair to say this one is facing more challenges than most? I mean, this is, there are so many. If this, if the world were an emergency room, the Biden White House is in triage mode. You have multiple crises happening all at once. And we're talking about Russia and Ukraine. We also have this issue where they're trying to finalize a deal with the Iranians who are then showing off their weapons and suggesting that their IRGC doesn't need to be in the terrorism uh, group anymore. Um, You have the truth of the matter is there's a famine that's coming. And we all know it because the wheat can't get out of Russia and Ukraine and there's not enough fertilizer in order to feed the world. And if you remember the Arab Spring, that wasn't just about Twitter. Wheat prices had gone through the roof. People were hungry. And when people are hungry, there will be uprisings. And when there are uprisings, there's also emigration and people try to leave to get somewhere else. So there's all of those problems. I didn't even mention our southern border. Oh, should we talk about China? There's that issue over there as well. There are so many issues that are going on on the just on the foreign policy front. And so many people that are in the president's party, they just want to talk about domestic issues. And they have pulled the president quite far to the left, and which is why, one, the president is looking at historic losses when it comes to the midterm elections. And they, they're not going to be able to get a lot done between now and then. And then we're off to the races for 2024. So they have headwinds, but I think that because things are so precarious right now and national security is so important, they have to focus on that and not worry about the elections or about the poll numbers. They have to do what they think is right and let the chips fall where they may. Then, of course, we have the high inflation, which is both domestic and and global. Excuse me, I didn't even mention that part. The famine's been on my mind, but the energy (laughs) prices, they're hitting absolutely everybody, especially the low income. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, the White House umbrella over all these things is it's either pandemic related or it's Putin's fault a lot. Is that holding water with voters? No. And you look at something like the meeting that President Biden had before he went to Europe with the business roundtable where Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, implored the president to create a Marshall Plan for natural gas energy production. So when you have one of the biggest Democratic donors who runs one of the biggest financial institutions in the world telling you that you need to have a Marshall Plan for energy and oil exploration, there might be some changes. But that would be where Biden needs to say, we can do more oil and gas production while we try to transition to greener energy, but we have to do this now. And he's going to have to buck that left side of his party. While the president was in Europe, the Senate Judiciary Committee was wrapping up confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who spent quite a bit of time Tuesday and Wednesday defending sentencing decisions, especially in child pornography cases, while fielding questions from Republican senators, including Missouri's Josh Hawley. The government asked for enhancements. Why didn't you apply the enhancements as they were asked for? Senator, I've answered this question many times. 
from many senators who've asked me, so I'll stand on what I've already said. Judge Jackson says her decisions have been based on factors beyond sentencing guidelines, that she weighs the evidence, differentiates among defendants, and that her sentences have been in line with most of her colleagues. Given that Democrats have the votes to confirm her, were Republicans using the hearings to help set the stage on some midterm issues? And was that a wise thing to do? I mean, it's hard to imagine that um, a, a Supreme Court nominee's hearings in March will be top of mind come November. However, there are issues about crime that are going to be on the ballot and also about parents and parents' involvement and ch- with their children. I think that the Republicans know that Katanji Brown Jackson has the votes. Uh, I think they did what they could, the best they could. I do think that I'm not one to harp on media bias, but when it comes to judicial nominations, it is so stark to me how Republican nominees are treated in the media versus Democratic nominees. It's just unbelievable. Democrats are considered passionate for asking tough questions. Republicans are considered attack dogs for doing the same thing. I mean, she would be, of course, making history. She's already made history just by being nominated. She has made history. She will make history as a Supreme Court justice. And it's premature to congratulate her. But I think that it's not lost on me that this is a significant historical moment. We lost a historic figure this week, to say the least. Um, Madeleine Albright, highest ranking woman in U.S. government history at the time when she became President Bill Clinton's Secretary of State. I loved that the official statement from President Biden on her passing um, mentioned her collection of pins. (laughs) Um, What was it like to know her and to spend any time behind the scenes with her? She was such a woman of strength and dignity and grace. And I love that combination. She was quite blunt and she had earned the right to be. She believed in America fiercely and in liberty and democracy and freedom and for fighting for the little guy. Um, as she did during um, the Serbian War and when she went to Bill Clinton and said, we need to get involved. So I love the fact that she had used her pins as a way to communicate to the world. She was artistic. She was a mom, just an incredible woman. I was honored to know her. I didn't know her as well as some other people like Jillian Turner here at Fox News actually got her first job from Madeleine Albright. But one of my favorite stories is that the first woman, Secretary of State, who was an immigrant to our country, Madeleine Albright. Her family fled the Nazis. Her dad got a job as a professor of international relations at the University of Denver. And a few years later, who becomes his student? But Secretary Condoleezza Rice. (laughs) And it's a lovely story how that all came full circle. Wow. Layer, layers of history. Yeah. Um, Dana Prino, always a pleasure. Co-anchor of America's Newsroom on Fox News Channel. Also co-host of The Five. And I want to mention season two of your podcast, Everything Will Be Okay, is available starting Monday. You can find that at foxnewspodcasts.com. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. Loved it. Thank you. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is Will Kane with your Fox News commentary coming up. 
I'm Chris Foster. The United Nations says about 10 million Ukrainians, a quarter of the population, have left their homes since the start of the Russian invasion a month ago. Some have left the country. Some are still in Ukraine in cities considered more safe, at least for now. They need a place to stay, and of course, they need to eat. Jose Andres is helping with that. The chef and restaurant owner has a nonprofit organization called World Central Kitchen that provides meals to people in need due to crises like natural disasters and, in this case, war. Uh, as soon as we saw the first bombs and the attack uh, began by the Russians, uh, World Central Kitchen team landed here. He spoke with us from Lviv, Ukraine. From there, we've expanded across six countries. Obviously, we're inside Ukraine in more than 19, 20 cities, probably a few more. Uh, by now, we are now in countries like Spain, where I'm from in Madrid, where there is a refugee, uh, Ukrainian refugee welcoming center, where we are there 24-7 also uh, feeding uh, people. We are doing more or less around 200,000 meals right now, and the number keeps increasing as the shelters become sometimes slightly bigger every day. Right, right. Um, how do you even know where to go in a situation like this? It's not like uh, where it, it's not it's, it's not so centralized. Is, is there coordination with with local governments? What's the infrastructure for these people being taken care of? Well, remember, we are restaurant people. We are chefs. We are cooks. Um, we have it in our blood, not waiting to be called, but to find the people. When our modus operandi is food people, restaurants, farmers, who knows better any city than chefs and restaurant owners. Uh, we get information on the fly. It's uh, uh, train stations and they need food. Those are very obvious. In the border, when people are waiting on the buses, sometimes for hours, like in the early days, sometimes for days, five, six days, we, 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 we learn by having something is very important and everybody forgets. Not by being on a room planning, but by being with boots on the ground and scouting the situation. That's why we are in more than 750 delivery places, because since day one, the thing we've been doing is let's start cooking. Let's start bringing food with us. Let's start scouting. A lot of times in these situations, international food aid might be, OK, here's some bags of flour. Here's some military ready to eat meals. You're trying to do something to care for these people and make them feel cared for. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, how many restaurants are there in, the, in planet Earth? We're talking about millions and millions of restaurants. Obviously, if this was a hurricane like in Bahamas, where the Northern Islands were totally wiped out and was no one place to cook, there we will build our own big kitchen. Here we have our kitchen, north uh, 20 minutes from Medica in the town of Shimish, where we have a huge kitchen that we can do 500,000 meals a day if we have to. But everywhere else we use food trucks, catering companies, restaurant partners, that they become our friends we support them with know-how. We support them, obviously, financially. We support them in any way we can, getting the food. But right now, the food in, obviously, Poland, Romania, uh, Moldova, uh, Slovakia, uh, Hungary, in the places we are all across, is no issue with food. Inside Ukraine, I mean, Labiv, if you come with me to the supermarkets, the supermarkets have food. If you come with me to restaurants, where right now I can see one, the, the, the restaurant is, is full with people having dinner, people having coffee. It's kind of this situation where in Lviv things is not a war in Ukraine. And we know that we are receiving photos by partners in places like Kyrgyz and others that they are under shell, uh, shelling or they are under bombing. This is the situation we live in Ukraine that somehow looks like nothing is happening in Lviv until we don't hear the alarms going up because a missile may be coming. And all of a sudden, not to a few hundred kilometers away, people are dying in the front lines. 
this is how crazy a war may be in a country. Yeah, I mean, and, and some of them are, are dying of dehydration. They're dying of starvation in uh, Mariupol. When you see these people filing through, not filing through, but when your your guests, what are you hearing from them? What are you seeing in their faces? Is it is it relief? Is it some residual, residual terror? And yesterday night, I um, I was checking our operations in Medic, and was this woman that uh, she was carrying a very big piece of luggage. Uh, the woman was older, probably in her 70s. And you could see that she had no more tears to give, but still she was crying. Is this kind of amazing, crazy situation that breaks your heart? Uh, we got very quickly, obviously, a translator. And the message was, I lost my son. My son died. Um, this is the situation you find when you see a children that when you're giving them a plate of food or a sandwich or candy, the first thing they tell you, my dad stay behind. When you cross and you see sometimes that the fathers or the brothers are the ones driving their family to the border and, and they say goodbye. Um, not to make it dramatic, but we know that goodbye means a lot of things because those young men are going back with only one idea, to defend their country. And when you see those moments, those goodbyes, uh, kind of you really cannot help it but have a tear or two because you are suffering in a way like them. Even you cannot understand what they're going through. Yeah. This is the many situations you will face in the border or in land inside Ukraine. Um, you've been in dangerous situations before, but not like this. Never, you've never tried to activate, to be activated in an active war zone. Um, but like you said, Lviv is this sort of bastion of peace. But are you concerned that Lviv could be next? Last week when I was here in the Lviv as I was leaving and I was getting on my plane, I saw this sequence of missiles that hit few kilometers outside the city of Lviv, very close to the border uh, with Poland. All of a sudden, you realize that the war is moving west. Uh, obviously, not the same as Kiev is suffering and other, uh, and other cities. But uh, what you do is making sure that you have good systems in place, that you don't put anybody in more danger than necessary. But this is the reality. Uh, the war is fought many ways. We are an organization of peace. We're an organization of feeding. And what we are very proud is to know that there are our cooks. Many of them could be away from their restaurant, away from their city. They could be in the safety of one country that is welcoming them. They could be working in another restaurant somewhere in Europe. But those men and women decide to stay, to keep doing what they know best, which is to gather the food, to light the kitchen in any way or form they can, to start cooking and start feeding anybody that is in need. Well, in a shelter, well, in a tunnel, where in a neighborhood, uh, this is what breaks, uh, gives me a little bit of joy, is to know that those men and women are doing it. And the least we can be doing as World Central Kitchen is to be near them, organizing the system, organizing the food, making sure that when we can, they receive track loads full of fruit and non-perishables so they can keep feeding their people, which right now they are our people. All the Europe and all the world should be with the Ukrainian people that they're going through a war that has no reason to exist. The least we can be doing is that the people going through this mayhem, at the very least, can be fed and can be receiving water. Even We know some people are having a hard time right now at getting those things. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken with chefs before um, who said they got into this just for the, the, love of, the love of feeding people. It's a very fundamental thing. And what you're doing, obviously, is taking that to a much bigger level. Did you feel that as a kid growing up that you just, is this why you wanted to cook? 
<laughs> Listen, um, I think everybody forgets that. I don't want to get to romanticize here, but the first gift in a tangible form that we receive as humans in the moment we're born is, is food. When our mothers bring us clothes to their bodies and feed us. And even if we are highly unaware, I think that moment, that moment seals the connection between humans and food. That food is, is a moment of goodness. That food is a moment of saying you're welcome. That food is something you may share with a stranger. That food is this moment that you say longer tables will win the day. And higher walls have no space. And why I do what I do? Because it's what everybody does. What do you do with the people you love? Or the new, new people you meet? You invite them to a restaurant or even better. You invite them home. You sit them in your table and you break bread. My friend, that's what I do, what I do. But that's what very much every single chef in Ukraine right now. And let me tell you, in Poland, in Romania, I want to say thank you to the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people that in a very unselfish way, in the moment that refugees were leaving Ukraine and crossing into their cities, from firefighters to school teachers to retired military, all began cooking, all began giving diapers or giving blankets or whatever was needed to take care of this crisis. The people that helped these refugees from the beginning were not the very big organizations, were not the, the, the UN, was not the European community, was everyday citizens taking lead and taking care of people in need. And to all of them, my biggest round of applause because I've been here and I've seen it in first person they are, to me, the other heroes of this crisis. When you get back to the U.S. after missions like this, does it take a while for it not to seem a little <laughs> inconsequential, a little silly to, to get back to the, the fancy restaurant life? Well, I mean, I'm one person. Every We have now hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. I have a lot of people that came from different parts of the world that they are volunteering with us in different situations. And everybody, obviously, has a moment, right? Yesterday was the birthday of my daughter, and I'm going to miss it. And, and very soon it's going to be a very important moment. My other daughter is a big graduation moment, and I think I'm going to miss it. And, and like me, we have millions right now of Ukrainians that they are not only missing those important moments, but that they don't have loved ones already because they are, they are dead, or because they lost their homes, because they are already under ruins. Uh, so, yes, it puts in perspective what life is, right? Uh, I always say that what must be good for me must be good for others. Jose Andreas, I'm, I'm, I'm sure your daughters are very proud of you, and I'm sure you'll make it up to them when, you, uh, when you're able to get home. Jose, uh, founder of the nonprofit World Central Kitchen, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to Tyrus and Tim. Every week, Fox Nation host Tyrus and Fox News contributor Kat Tim give their hot takes, explore weird headlines, and share amusing stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. 
The medical professionals at Orlando Health Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children have a new co-worker who goes by the name of Parks. Parks is a two-year-old golden retriever and is the only facility dog at Arnold Palmer. Kimberly Burbage is a child life specialist there, helping kids cope with being in the hospital. And she told me she's been interested in starting a program like this for several years. She's also Parks' handler and says Parks works with patients alongside her. Some of them are chronic patients who maybe just need that extra support, kind of that judgment-free love that dogs can give everyone. Uh, He can help work as motivation for some of our kids. So if we have a child, for example, who is struggling to meet their goals set by their um, physical therapist or by their physicians, Parks can kind of work alongside them. Parks is a graduate from Canine Companions, a nonprofit group that trains canines to be service dogs and facility dogs. He had two years of training before joining the hospital and knows more than 40 commands, which Kimberly says they're using to accomplish physical therapy tasks for the patients. We've been working on him to get into a wagon, and that way the children can pull him around in the wagon, which might be helpful for anyone, but especially some of our kids who really need to move around that are kind of not wanting to. They build on commands to accomplish things like the wagon pull. So that command we built from jump, which would be him jumping into the wagon, and then sit which would be him sitting down and then a stay, so that way he stays right in that nice sit-up position, and then our patients can pull him around. Parks also knows how to push elevator buttons, open automatic doors, and the kids even get to walk him. We'll hook up a second leash to Parks, and then they can walk the dog with me holding Parks and with my leash to be under control, but then also they get to hold their leash and walk him around the unit. She says he's also been helpful in reducing anxiety. They love everyone, so it's a very non-judgmental time. It's very calming time. So just that rhythmic petting sometimes can help with anxiety um, and help support them. Best of luck to Parks in his new job and to the kids he's working with. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. What's on your mind? Leah Thomas didn't win the women's 500 freestyle at the NCAA championships. Because Leah Thomas is a man. Emma Wyatt won the 500. So says Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. For far too long, sanity has been content to point and mock insanity. We've trusted that reality would reward and permit sanity to prevail. We are children of the Enlightenment. We thought logic and reason would win the day. But America is sliding into a new dark ages, one where racism is approved if it's called anti-racism, one where science means thou shalt not question Fauci, and one where men are women and women are men. We've talked about the need to create parallel systems, to create tech companies where censorship is not the rule, to create companies, large corporations, entrepreneurial small businesses that don't approve of sexualizing children and of finding states that are free from anti-scientific lockdowns. The idea is you shouldn't participate in a system or with a company that hates you. You shouldn't participate in a fraud. That's what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said, that Florida will not participate in the fraud, that Leah Thomas is a man and participate in the destruction of women's sports. Good. Don't participate. 
Don't pretend. Don't participate. Opt out. Find companies. Play sports. Not ruled by insanity. It would be best if all the women swimmers in the NCAA just walked out. Wouldn't pretend. Wouldn't participate. And find parallel systems. That's what Governor Ron DeSantis has done. Leah Thomas is not your champion. Emma Wyant is the champ. This is Will Kane, host of the Will Kane podcast, which you can find by going to foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Getting Schooled is a podcast hosted by Fox Nation's Abby Hornacek. Each week, Abby and her expert guests tackle topics we take for granted and help explain the roots and meanings behind them. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.